Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. On this 4th of August, appreciate your uh, ongoing prayers for my brother-in-law, Joe, in the hospital with COVID, but he is improving. In fact, last night he asked, uh, well, they did not put him on a ventilator, so that's a great um, update. His uh, his system is responding positively to the treatments they are giving him. And last night he asked if I would make those apple muffins. And so uh, the good news is we've been processing apples into cider at our house because it's Big apple season where I live. And um, so I got up early this morning and made what are called redemption muffins, which uh, you take all that's left over from juicing the apples and you turn them into mighty tasty muffins. So I'll be headed to the hospital to deliver those to the nurse's unit and they can have some and Joe can have some and hopefully I will continue to he will continue to improve. So thank you for your prayers on that front. I got a good news story for you to lead off the day. You know, we need some good news stories, right, to get us going in the right direction. Well, this one is from Minnesota. There is a two-year-old named Benjamin, which, you know, just you just love that, right? I just, I just love that. And, uh, and Sarah, uh, Benjamin's mom, is featured in the story as well. But really, the headliner here is Mary O'Neill. Mary O'Neill is going to celebrate her 100th birthday in December. And Mary O'Neill lives next door to Benjamin Olson. So Benjamin is two. Mary is going to be 100 in December. And Mary is Benjamin's first best friend. So uh, during the pandemic, Benjamin didn't get to be with other kids. And so he didn't get to form the kinds of relationships that maybe we expect people to form uh, in their own generation. But he did develop over time uh, a very close relationship with his next door neighbor, Mary. So Mary would come out onto her back steps and there's a chain link fence that separates their two backyards. And uh, Benjamin would be out in his backyard uh, playing with a ball or playing with bubbles. And she would just engage him in conversation. And eventually they started playing something that they call cane ball, where he you know, rolls the ball toward his side of the fence and she reaches over the fence with her cane and pushes it back to him. And then eventually he started sharing the bubbles and so they would blow bubbles back and forth. And well, then one day he didn't really understand why the, you know, why he couldn't come through his gate and to her side of the fence. So then they started sitting on her back stoop and talking about things and life. And one day, Mary, now keep in mind, she's 99. She went down into the basement of her house and she brought up a an old laundry basket filled with what you and I would call vintage trucks, all kinds of trucks, big metal, heavy trucks, heavy duty kids trucks. They belonged to her late son. She'd never she never really thought much about them until, well, she became little Benjamin's best friend. And now he plays with those trucks in his backyard and she sits on her stoop and they talk about things. And I just bring this up because um, sometimes it's 
it's the person just on the other side of the fence. Like sometimes it's the person just on the other side of the fence. What might happen, not only in our personal lives, but in our communities, if we got to know the person on the other side of the fence, even if they're 99 and we're two? So there's a good news story for you today out of Minneapolis. All right, uh, next up, we've got Pastor Daryl Crouch. He and I are going to talk about how we can really serve one another as neighbors in this season. How can churches and ministries and individuals help those who are affected uh, facing eviction? And then also, how can we do so in terms of helping our local schools as students go back to school? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Daryl Crouch. He heads up an organization called Everyone's Wilson, which I would uh, invite you to check out. You can also read his Substack for our city blog at Substack.com. Um, Daryl, uh, an update that many people may not have heard yet uh, on the eviction moratorium, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a late but fresh stop uh, on certain evictions, saying that evicting people could be detrimental to public health, and so they have intervened. I would describe this as a limited, targeted eviction moratorium, and it expires October the 3rd. So a reprieve in some places for some people, but let's just talk about the housing crisis that people are facing in America. Yeah, it's good to be with you. I I think uh, you're right. It is a crisis. And I think there's a few things that I think about as uh, we're we're talking about this and stepping into the space. One is this is a very difficult situation that did not come just uh, on on the heels of COVID or uh, propelled by COVID. Uh, this is a, a an issue that affects so many of our neighbors that teeter on the edge of poverty. And so this is a very complicated issue. It's a difficult issue. And I think at some at some level, we, we have to say this isn't heaven yet. And so this is going to be hard right now. And uh, so that that's not that's first. And then I think for churches and people who love Jesus and want to sh- share the, the hope of the gospel, uh, this is our moment. I just I think this is just an incredible moment for the church of the living God to uh, to step into this space. You know, sometimes um Carmen, at least the background I've come from is that we have churches that that have mercy ministries. You know, we have a mercy ministry, we have a food closet, we have a clothes closet or whatever it may be. Um, But in fact, the church is a mercy ministry. And so we don't have one. We are one. And so for us to step into this and uh, we can't fix everything, we can't solve it all. We we understand that property owners need the rent money to, uh, to pay for the mortgage that they have on that property. We we know there's a supply chain issue happening that's much bigger and much macro than, than what we can get our arms around. But a local church can step into this space, even if it's one family at a time, and um, uh, work to meet the needs of, of that family. And so this is a good moment. It's not a good moment, obviously, for our neighbors, but it, this is an important moment for the church 
to step into this space and not wring our hands and not wag our fingers, uh, but to step into this and to help those that God has put in front of us. Well, I said yesterday, um, Daryl, on this topic, that one of the things that someone could simply do is go online and Google the phrase rent assistance near me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was surprised uh, how many places a person could turn within 25 miles of where I live for rent assistance. Um, I might have also been a little bit surprised how uh, how few of those appear to be expressly faith-based. So mm-hmm. there are both kind. There are both things happening. There are um, there are church-based rent assistance programs out there, but there are also a lot of secular ones as well. Um, talk about the the witness that the church has in terms of it's not just about writing a check so that someone can pay their rent. Talk about the the whole life kind of ministry that needs to be happening when somebody has reached the the circumstance, the place in life where because of circumstances, in many cases, largely outside of their control, a disability, uh, you know, the the fact that kids have been out of school and therefore a parent mm-hmm. has to remain home. I mean, on and on and on and on and on, yeah. particularly single parent households, because this, yeah. these are the kinds of things that you focus on at Everyone's Wilson. And uh, mm-hmm. it's not just one issue and it's not a one off. I, I think that helping people see the holistic situation is helpful here. Uh, it, it really is, and I appreciate you asking. I, I do want to, to help us meet the crisis, so churches do need to find those resources in their community. It doesn't have to be faith-based resources, but there are, if there's rent assistance and they can be a resource to those who come to their door for food or, or uh, housing issues or whatever it may be. So churches do need to step in to this space in, in this crisis moment, but it is a holistic issue, and it is an attitudinal issue. And I Maybe I'm I'm a little bit uh, jaded or a little bit uh, my, my my perspective is a is um, is very limited maybe but sometimes in in church world we have certain ideas about people who are struggling in poverty that may not be exactly accurate. I was with our uh, local help center on Friday and and uh, the director said you know a lot of these people a lot of the people who've come to see us over the last six or eight months have never had to ask for help before. They've never been in this situation where they're about to lose their apartment or lose their home or they need help with uh, food this week. And so these are our neighbors. These are, and I I don't want to, you understand what I'm saying. These are normal people. Mm -hmm. These are just regular everyday people. These are folks that uh, could be us in any moment. And so I think for us to have a disposition to say, uh, these are our neighbors these are people who obviously bear the image of God, and uh, we need to position ourselves in a way that makes it um, uh, normal for them uh, and for us to work together to, to create solutions. And so uh, it does require for any of us, and this is true for you and for me as we were growing up, uh, we uh, had people invest in us, we had people come beside us. Um, uh, we all need people who will come beside us and and believe in us. And many of the people who find themselves in these situations are isolated. They do not have a set of friends. They don't have a family that are local. They they grew up in a broken home or a broken situation. And uh, so uh, isolation has uh, a lot to do with the spot that they're in today. And so for churches to come in and just simply be a friend uh, 
to these individuals and families. Let them know that somebody believes in them, somebody loves them, and um, and we can do this together. Um, and and then and then be willing to walk that out in a way that may not meet your expectations. I've just been reminded uh, on many uh, occasions recently, it's not a sin to be poor. It's not a sin to be in need. Um, in fact, my failure to recognize that I'm always in need is probably the sin. Uh, and so, so, you know, so important. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of the things I noticed, Carmen, just real quickly to ping on that, I, I was reading in First Timothy a few weeks ago, and and one of the criteria, if you're if you become a widow, and um, one of the criteria that Paul lists there is that while before you were a widow, you were hospitable, you were giving yourself to the afflicted. And again, I, not to get too too far in the weeds on what widows we should help and what widows we shouldn't help, but but the idea that there is an expectation that we would show hospitality mm-hmm. when we have the ability to, that there is an expectation that we show hospitality, and um, that's a healing balm for the for the neighbors that are um, that are struggling. Talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch, uh, he and I will return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Daryl Crouch from Everyone's Wilson. You can also read his For Our City blog on Substack.com. Daryl, let's uh, pivot and have a conversation about school Hopefully, hopefully, uh, students uh, returning to actual in-person learning at schools in our communities and across the country. How can um, ministries and churches help local schools and students and families get get back to school? Yeah, what a what a great season! I've, I've, I don't know if uh, you've seen this on your social media feeds or whatnot, but just so many churches. Uh, are stepping into this and uh, being so generous with supplies and with um, fun stuff for the faculty and, you know, just blessing them and showing, you know, showing a lot of love to faculty and and administrators as well as students and their families. And so, so many churches intuitively think and, and their church year, if that's the right, or their ministry year also starts when school begins. And so this is a really a big time for, for churches and uh, so many are, are doing that. And and so the, the supplies and the, the resources for students that uh, wouldn't have a, a full backpack or of supplies already, uh, so many churches are doing that. And so uh, we, we encourage that and we, we want to see that just multiplied. The, 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 um, the other level of work that we think is so important is getting, you know, human beings with other human beings regularly. And that is a longer runway. And that's a longer commitment and a bigger commitment for churches to commit to um, to building the relationships that are necessary with their schools, uh, the the trust that's needed in order for for that to happen. Many administrators and faculty members uh, are not uh, quick to trust uh, churches. Uh, the 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 current situation um, can uh, politically or socially um, there there's a, a church state. Uh, issues that are very important to our public school administrators uh, to honor, and um, and churches uh, aren't aren't always good at that. Uh, we're very excited about sharing Jesus and praying with kids and so on, and and that, um, that this is not an environment where that can happen during the school hours. And so, uh, just to build the trust 
and uh, play by the rules and honor the faculty and the and the staff that are trying to educate these kids and seeing it as an opportunity to build some relationships. And so uh, I think uh, for a, a pastor or staff or volunteers to uh, to call the principal if they don't have a relationship with them already and, and um, just begin to build a relationship that uh, where they have to earn the trust needed in order to step in at a higher level. And that takes time. And so if churches go into schools with their own agenda, uh, it's not going to work out very well. But if we go into the schools and say, how can we serve you? How, how can we help you be successful this year? And their job is to educate kids. And so if that's not our job, then we need to rethink our, our strategy. And so um, just to help churches know that it's a long game that we're in, and, uh, but it's a wonderful opportunity. So many of the kids that struggle, the at-risk kids that still struggle to read at age grade levels and, and perform well, they have issues at home that we've spoken of already with regard to poverty or homelessness or uh, drug addiction uh, parents or uh, whatever it may be. And so um, there's plenty of opportunities and a responsibility that we have to be engaged in the public public schools. And so, but it is a long game. And so the, the in-kind gifts of, of food and uh, backpacks and coats at Christmas and bicycles at Christmas, all of those things uh, build goodwill and really help those kids in a big way. Um, but uh, it's the first step in terms of uh, really making the kind of impact that would be transformational in the lives of kids. Yeah, that life to life part, I think, is the scary, you know, that's the scary step for people because, you know, that uh, once I'm in that relationship, then the mess of that person's mm-hmm. life might rub off on me. Right. And so I do think that we are resistant to becoming personally involved. And yet, if we don't become personally involved, then we're not really being Christian neighbors to those around us. I mean, we're not really incarnating what it means to walk the faith out into our local communities. Uh, I'm starting. Yeah. Uh, I'm starting by. Uh, I have not attended a school board meeting in my community now, in part because it's kind of a long way from where I live. It's on the other end of the county. It's kind of late in the evening because I happen to have a really mm-hmm. early morning job. But I've decided yeah. that you know what? If I don't start going to school board meetings, then I really don't know what's happening mm-hmm. in the schools in my community beyond the one where you know I have a kid. And so I'm just going to start making that investment. Um, You know, I suppose you could frame that as a sacrifice, but I'm going to start making that investment. I'm just going to start going like I need to listen. I need to I need to put faces to names. I need to start meeting people at that level of decision making in my own community. Um, I've also thought that uh, I've recognized there is a vocational program at our high school that I think is under-resourced. And when I say that, I think it's under-resourced in terms of people. It's not under-resourced in terms of material things. They they have plenty Mm -hmm. of money to do what they want to do, but they don't have, for whatever reason, like all the resource people that I think should be engaged in in vocational ed um, with students who aren't going to go to college. And so um, I've thought, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to offer, you know, to maybe put together an advisory group for that program if they want it, you know, right? So I do think we can think creatively, you know, think creatively about needs that we see. So, yeah, it's one thing for me to go and say, how can I serve you? But sometimes people don't have the answer to that question. Sometimes we have to think creatively about needs we see. And then, you know, would this, might this be a way that I could collaborate with you 
to meet a need that you didn't even really necessarily have at top of your list? Absolutely. And if you show up for those board meetings, you're you're going to be an all-star. Those board meetings are not very well attended by the the public. And so as you get uh, show up, you'll build friendships, you'll build relationships. They'll begin to trust you. They'll ask you for help and you'll have opportunity. And the and the vota- vocational training uh, piece is just huge uh, in our community. Uh, that's a huge emphasis because many students will not go to college. They're not col- They don't want to go to college. They don't feel called to go to college. But they've got wonderful opportunities in the trade uh, uh, industry, and um, and there's jobs available for them. And so um, this is a big piece of helping again uh, turn the tide systemically in the area of of poverty and joblessness and so on. And so uh, all of those efforts really do add up and they really do make a difference. And that's why we're here. And uh, for churches to say, this is a part of our, if you will, our scorecard. This is a part of our metric of success. Not just how many people are coming to us on Sunday, which is important, but how many of us are involved in these areas that you've just mentioned and and what is that looking like in terms of the way that we relate to our neighbors and the investment as you mentioned that we're that we're making into these kids and um so just to to expand that this is this is kingdom work and uh, these schools already exist and they've got children already coming every day trying to be uh prepared for their future we we can be a part of that all right, Everyone's Wilson, you can check it out on all the social medias. You can just visit them online, everyoneswilson.org. See what uh, Daryl is up to, what they're doing at Everyone's Wilson. Maybe catch the vision, become equipped to do it in your own community. Daryl, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. I look forward to some redemption muffins. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll have to head east. I'll have to put yeah. the car in front. Yeah. Yeah, all right, on, man. Excited. You got it. You all got right. it. All right. We got to take a break for Knowing God with Greg Laurie. We'll be right back. All right, what in the world is going on in the world today? Leading the headlines across across much of media is what's happening in the state of New York related to the governor there. We're going to talk with David French about what happened yesterday and what we might anticipate in the days ahead. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Years ago, I took a job under a boss who was a great guy, but he required perfection from his employees. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The job taught me a lot, but the internal and external pressure to be perfect was overwhelming. My boss used spiritual motivators to convince me that programs had to be run smoothly and relationships were never to have conflict. You know what that led to? Burnout. And I even found myself lying to my boss. No one is perfect. And when we demand perfection from our teens, we just push them to lie or worse, damage the relationship. Let's ease up on our demands and give a little wiggle room for imperfection. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
me now, David French. You can find him at thedispatch.com. His uh, his stuff is at the French Press. It's just called French Press, which is kind of the best way to make coffee, um, but also an excellent way in which David French presses the conversations of the day forward. So, David, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Wow. Okay. So what happened yesterday? For people who um, have not been briefed in, tell them what happened yesterday in the state of New York. Yeah, it was it was pretty remarkable. The attorney general of New York had commissioned a study or commissioned an investigation of a series of sexual harassment allegations against Andrew Cuomo. And she released a report yesterday and it was incredibly damaging. Um it had multiple allegations that he had, for example, um, grabbed the breast of a one of his executive assistants, that he had um, grabbed the, you know, the buttocks of other, you know, of other women that worked for him, that he had um, behaved in ways that I guess the best way would, you know, the, the best way to describe it would be you know, not not the kind of sexual sort of forcible touching that that's a term under New York law that, you know, the of grabbing people, but just very deeply creepy, um, you know, running his finger down the center of a, a of a state trooper's spine uh, from her neck down to the center of her spine. And then just a lot of very inappropriate, deeply personal kinds of communications. I mean, it was. Um, it was bad. It was bad. It was the kind of stuff that, you know, I spent several years in, uh, private law firms before I, uh, became a constitutional litigator. And it was the kind of stuff that would be, um, an, a, an egregious sexual harassment, uh, finding with potential criminal charges. And so, um, yes, it, it was, it, and, and then the governor denied it all. And, denied it in a very weird way by sort of focusing in on some of the allegations that he would hold people's faces in his hands and things like that by saying, well, that's just how I treat everybody and had photo collages, for example, of him, you know, being very intimate with people, you know, other, other leaders, other people, but really um, the core allegations didn't really relate to him holding people's faces with his hands or hugging. It was the grabbing. It was the caressing. It was, it was bad. <laughs> There's no, no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, what struck me um, was the number of verified reports in the, uh, you know, the, the investigation chronicled. They're very particular. They're very specific. They're all employees of the state of New York. Like this is, um, this is a workplace issue as well. Men right. are, well, it, men or women, the the person at the top, in this case, the governor of the state of New York, is, if this is what you do on a regular basis, then that's not your job. Like, you can't have that job and treat people this way. That seemed to me to be the misunderstanding, the the break in the argument that the governor came forward to make. This is just who I am. This is just how I treat people. Well, okay, if that's true, you can't have this job. Like, that seems to me to be where this heads. Yeah, you know, one of my tests of when you're you're looking at sort of public employee misconduct, what is the kind of thing or public leader misconduct 
what's the kind of thing that would end a career in the private sector? And this is the mm -hmm. kind of thing that would end a career in the private sector. Uh, this is the kind of thing for which a corporate board would hold a CEO accountable. And so he, uh, um, Joe Biden has called on him to resign. Nancy Pelosi has called on him to resign. Chuck Schumer has called on him to resign. The Speaker of the New York State House is pressing forward with impeachment proceedings. And so, yeah, I wrote yesterday, impeach him, imp impeach him. This, you know, we're, we're reaching a point where how many public officials are going to get away with wrongdoing just by refusing to step aside and fighting. And, you know, this is a situation where he's, you know, arguably one of the two or three most important governors in the United States of America. And this behavior is way, way out of bounds. So I was glad to see these Democratic leaders call on him to resign. But if he's not going to resign and there's no there's no sign that he will, then he needs to be forced out. Yeah, so there's calls for him to resign. That would be the political, uh, you know, there's there's obviously political consequences. Legal consequences may follow. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, there's, anytime you engage in behavior like that, there's there's going to be two questions. One, did you violate civil law? Okay, so civil law, which is law that uh, protects women from uh, from sexual harassment in the workplace. That's not criminal law, but it's would allow you know people to recover damages, for example, or did you violate criminal law? And as I said, the, the allegations of groping really do look like they violate New York criminal law. Now, um, you know, that's, of course, it's much harder to prove a criminal case because that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt compared to a civil case, which is preponderance of the evidence. But it, it what, you know, the interesting thing about this is it documented it documented these claims very effectively, and it really did leave open the option is, is there even a, is there a possibility of a criminal sanction here? And so it's very clear that the call, you know, the calls for him to resign are sort of the, they're the lowest level of sanction he, that he deserves. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we'll see what happens in the law enforcement realm. But in the meantime, just from a matter of just basic political hygiene and basic political accountability, um, it's important for the you know the New York Democratic Party to take care of this situation. I mean, we've we've grown accustomed to political parties being totally unwilling to uh, discipline their own members, uh, totally unwilling to impose accountability on their own elected officials, and you know this is a Democratic-run state with a Democratic governor and. You know, there's really not much Republicans can do here. So it's going to be up to the Democratic Party to to follow through on this. And I hope that they do. Yeah, lots of uh, folks texting in right now. Um, hey, what about the nursing home um, debacle? Will Governor Cuomo be investigated for and held accountable for the nursing home debacle? Those are good questions as well. Um, we're going to continue our conversation with David French in just a moment. He and I are going to pivot to some other conversations. There's a institutionalist case to be made for reversing the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, which has led to uh, just a, an extraordinary number of abortions um, since the early 1970s here in the United States of America. So we're going to talk about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. So speak All 
right, I am reading from the French press, which you can find at thedispatch.com. The article is the institutionalist case for reversing Roe v. Wade. The author is David French. David, uh, you lead off with this. The state of Mississippi has thrown down the gauntlet. Take it away. Yes. So um, there's been a number of cases involving abortion that's come that have come up to the Supreme Court since the, the Casey decision back in the early 1990s. And none of them have really asked the court to overrule Roe. They They've instead asked the court to uphold a particular restriction on abortion, but without and, and essentially arguing you can you can uphold the restriction of abortion without overruling Roe, without overruling Casey, while still preserving the underlying right to an abortion. And what what the state of Mississippi did is it just went straight at the Roe and Casey precedent and said, uh, overrule these cases that. Uh, the the Mississippi law at issue, which is a ban on abortion after 15 weeks, is incompatible with the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence. And so rather than sort of saying, well, adjust the jurisprudence, adjust the law so that uh, our 15-week ban is still effective, but you can still leave the underlying abortion right untouched, Supreme Court said, nope, overrule it. Roe and Casey are bad law. They're bad reasoning. They're bad constitutional law. There's no justification in them in the text or in the history of the Constitution. And they went straight at it. And the argument that I made in the piece is that this is actually not radical. <laughs> uh, there are justices of the Supreme Court that uh, they we know that they are quite concerned with sort of the reputation of the court. They they don't like to make radical moves. And the argument that I was trying to make was that the radical move here was the Roe decision. That was the radical move. I mean, it was even recognized by progressives as radical. In 1992, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, very pro-choice justice, said that Roe was breathtaking in scope because it swept away every, basically every abortion-limiting law in the country when it was decided that it caused an enormous amount of controversy and division. And she wrote that in 1992, and she was right. It was breathtaking in scope. And the argument that I make is by restoring the constitutional structure here, where the Constitution is silent on abortion. The Constitution doesn't mention abortion. It doesn't contain a right to an abortion. And if you if you um, sweep it away, sweep away the road decision and send the issue back to the states where the constitutional structure says it belongs, then you will actually potentially be de-escalating a lot of American politics and you're going to be restoring uh, the constitutional integrity of the Supreme Court. couple of observations. Um, I'm not sure that the average person in the United States right now understands the rights guaranteed by the Constitution in the same way that you as a constitutional lawyer understand the rights guaranteed by the Constitution. And so the conversation about whether or not the Constitution supports a right to an abortion would seem to me to be the same kind of argument um, that would say that the Constitution supports the right of a person to be married um, or the right of a person. Do you see where I'm headed? Like, mm-hmm. right, the conversation about 
how we even understand the rights guaranteed by the Constitution, that's going to require a mammoth re-education of the American public because people think that if the Supreme Court says the Constitution says it's a right, then it must be a right because the court's always right. But the court's not always right. Sometimes the court is wrong. And sometimes the court has been extremely wrong over the years, like the Korematsu decision that upheld Japanese. That is so that is I have that written down. I'm like, let's talk about how wrong the court was in 1944 (laughs) in the six, six, three decision of Korematsu. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Tell people about that. Yeah. So this was a case where uh, FDR ordered the internment and the American, you know, the American government ordered the internment of. American citizens of Japanese descent at the onset of World War II and just rounded up families, just rounded them up and put them in camps. And this was ostensibly trying to uh, prevent sabotage or other, you know, other actions uh, undermining the American war effort. But that's that was a grotesque violation of their rights, just a grotesque violation of their rights. And the Supreme Court upheld it, that the Supreme Court upheld that challenge. And it was it's one of the precedents that's a shame on the court, just like, say, the Dred Scott decision or Plessy v. Ferguson, which upheld separate but equal, which uh, solidified segregation. So the Supreme Court has made a number of terrible decisions. But you're exactly right. I mean, look, most people don't really understand constitutional law. And look, I mean, I get it. You know, um, people have busy lives. I mean, how are you supposed to understand the nuances of the Bill of Rights? I mean, this is this is something that, um, you know, we we don't necessarily uh, have much expectation of Americans to understand the ins and outs of constitutional law. But the Roe v. Wade decision has was one that even at the time, even amongst people who supported abortion rights, a lot of them were quite surprised by it, but because there is not a right of abortion guaranteed in the Constitution. In fact, to the extent that you have an, a viable argument that the Supreme Court, that the that the um, that the Constitution of the United States addresses the issue at all, that it would lean in favor of a pro-life position. In fact, um, and so the the reality is that this was something that even in the 1970s when it was decided caused a lot of people to be where a lot of people were really surprised by this. And I think one of the things that we've seen is the fact that abortion has now been protected by the Constitution, you know, under constitutional law by the Supreme Court for almost 50 years has meant that it's become kind of a part of the, you know, the the background of American law and life to such a degree that people take it for granted uh, and what the state of Mississippi did was just is reminding the justices that, no, this Roe decision, this Casey decision was complete. They were completely out of bounds from the text and in history of the Constitution. And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people it, look, a lot of people, they, they don't they not only don't understand sort of the text of the Constitution, they also don't understand what would happen if Roe is overruled. They think that that if Roe is overruled, that bans abortion everywhere. No, that leaves the regulation of abortion to the states. And so, uh, for example, in Tennessee, we have a heartbeat bill, and that means that Roe, uh, that abortion would be banned after a heartbeat could be detected. Other states protect abortion basically up until birth. Uh, and so it's very different from state to state. So Overruling Roe doesn't mean that abortion is banned. It means that a state could ban abortion 
it doesn't necessarily mean that any given state would ban abortion. All right. I um, I like the idea of approaching this from the standpoint that it would calm the culture war for us to actually return to an understanding that abortion is not uh, a constitutionally guaranteed right. I suspect that what we would then hear is it's a universal human right as declared by the United Nations, and we would then be in a different conversation about whose law governs this land. Well, but that's a, you know, maybe a different conversation for a different time. Yeah, people would make that argument, but that wouldn't, you know, the a UN, UN declarations are not going to have that kind of force of law here in, in the United States. It, you know, what would happen is I'm pretty sure well, I'm not I'm 100 percent sure that if Roe is overturned for a time, it would be a colossal, a, a colossal story. In other words, it would not deescalate things immediately. If Roe is overturned, there would be massive anger on the part of many progressives, not all, but many progressives in the United States, just massive. So my argument is much more that over time it would change the temperature because mm. right now this is the, you know, abortion for millions and millions and millions of people is the most important political slash legal issue in America. And they don't really have a say in it at all. Not at all. They have to vote for a president who will, who will select a Supreme court justice who might, might rule one way or the other, the way they like on the abortion issues. And so abortion becomes a dominant issue in national politics, even though the individual voter has very little ability to do anything about it. And so you take this most emotional issue, this most fraught issue, the one that inflames people the most, and then say they essentially have no real say over it. And I think that is something that's been an open wound on American politics. Not not, you know, and we're not even we haven't even gotten into the injustice of the decision itself, which mm-hmm. m- rendered it impossible to outlaw the killing of another human being. I mean, it rendered it, you know, just think about that. It rendered it illegal to outlaw the killing of another human being. And so so there you have this deeply unjust um, precedent that nobody really ha- that has now become part of the fabric of American, you know, constitutional jurisprudence where people haven't had the ability to really vote about it. And so this is something that I think, A, there would be a big convulsion national reaction if it's overruled, followed by more sanity in our politics, as every presidential election wouldn't be about Roe v. Wade anymore. Instead, your local, you know, the election of your state legislature and your governor would be about the abortion right. And you, it would cause people to focus more on these local elections and to focus less and to make each presidential election less broad. Yeah, bringing it closer to home, which is really where politics, right? That's where it really belongs. All right. Hey, David French, as always, thank you so much. We love talking with you. You guys can See what David is writing every day at the French Press at thedispatch.com. First hour of Mornings with Carmen. Well, that is it. But we've got another hour coming up next. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.